I put this together for two reasons. Uh, one, I like timelines. It just helps me to keep the overall flow of the story. Uh, but two, I think there's some interesting things to note about sequencing. One of the things that can be hard as we're reading the stories of the Bible, because uh, the narratives of the Bible are not written in 21st century Western narrative style. They're just not. They're written in the style, in this case, of, uh, uh, of post-exilic uh, Jewish literature. Um, some other different styles, of course, throughout the Bible. But it's hard for us, it can be hard for us to keep track of the timing. So I like doing stuff like this, these timelines, uh, to highlight, especially in the book of Esther, a couple of interesting uh, date situations. Number one, I want to point out, and then we're going to do the rest of this this, uh, this evening, that first section from the third year to the twelfth year, nine years, is it eight or nine? I can never tell how the things go. Let's say nine years because twelve minus three is nine. Nine years in the beginning of the story where we have a couple of instances, a couple of stories. Of course, we have uh, Vashti's fall and Esther's rise. We looked at, uh, I guess it was three weeks ago, uh, we looked at, at how Vashti, of course, fell from grace. We're going to look tonight at how Esther comes into the king's good graces. And then, of course, Mordecai and we're introduced to Haman. We're going to look at all that tonight. That takes place over a period of nine years, and that's it. That's all we get out of those nine years. So for those nine years, Esther is doing things that she does in court, and Mordecai's doing the stuff that Mordecai does, and Haman's dealing with whatever Haman's dealing with, and it's irrelevant to the text. Because ultimately, and this is, I have the box over here, uh, Pure and Purim, this, the book is about that holiday, the Feast of Purim, which comes from chapter 3, verse 7, when Haman begins to cast lots, they, or they're cast lots before Haman throughout the year. Cast of pure. I don't know if I'm saying that word right. That takes place all within the first nine years of the story. And then the 13th year of Hazarus is the rest of the story. It's all going to take place over that year-long period. Which again, as you just sort of read the story, you're not really paying attention to the dates. It does kind of seem like chapter 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8, and 9... They all just sort of take place one right after the other, but they don't. There's long gaps in that year between when the king, of course, issues his edict about the Jews, and then Esther eventually comes and has these feasts. But the feasts don't take place until three months after the edict is issued, in the third month. And then after that, of course, Haman, his comeuppance comes. Then there's another, whatever that is, third to nine, another nine months until the actual conclusion of the story that we just don't know. We just don't know anything about. There's just no information given because it's irrelevant to the story because, again, the story is about the Feast of Purim. So everything that's given to us in this story is in service of one particular goal. Where did this holiday come from? Where did this feast come from? What events led to the feast, led to the, the introduction of this feast in the Israelite calendar? Uh, what, what, how did God bring this about? So that's for you to have. You can, there, there is a digital copy. If you want a digital copy, uh, it's on. I'll put it on the church website, or I can email it to you, whatever you want. Uh, but that just gives you an overall flow of the story. And there, there's a lot of interesting time jumps that are ultimately irrelevant for the author's purpose. Because the author's purpose is, again, specifically explaining this event that led to this feast that the Israelites celebrated. So, today we're going to talk about the rest of the introductory material. I say introductory material. Chapters 1 and 2 and the first few verses of chapter 3 
are just setting the stage for the characters, the characters that are going to be involved in the story surrounding Pur and Purim, the, the lots that were cast before Haman. This is all setting up that story. We have the thing about Ahasuerus, the king, and then Vashti. We talked about that three weeks ago, four weeks ago. This time we're going to introduce the rest of the players in Esther 2 and uh, the beginning of chapter 3. Esther, Mordecai, and Haman, introducing the stage, setting the stage for this story that's going to unfold surrounding this idea of casting lots. And Esther is a, for a story that's full of what we, we might call cliched characters that are presented as archetypes. When I say archetypes, they're tropes. They're, they're uh, very much characterized as traditional narrative characters, right? We have uh, Esther, the sort of the damsel. We'll talk about her traits. We have Mordecai, who's sort of the archetype of the sage or the, the sort of the person that's moving from behind the scenes. And then we have Haman, who's very much just an archetypical bad guy. He's just the villain of the story. And we've already been introduced to Ahasuerus, who is the classic sort of buffoon king, who in some ways is presented more of a force as a force of nature than an actual person in the story. He's the, the main power that be in, in the, the kingdom. He's the one that everybody's afraid of. He's the one that everybody has to go through. He's the one that actually has all the power to enact certain things within the story. So in some ways presented more as a force of nature that has to be appeased. Of course, he's banished Vashti. He didn't like it. Now he was sad. Towards the end of chapter, uh, the end of what we talked about last week, the beginning of chapter uh, two, he's sad. He's banished Vashti. He's not happy about it. He's he's sort of fickle about this. And so they introduce, hey, let's let's have a beauty contest. Let's find the best queen for you to replace Vashti, so you're not so sad anymore. And that's going to lead us into the introduction of, of course, Esther and Mordecai and Haman. And again, I want to note, we're going to talk about all this. Then nine years pass with these three characters before they're the narrative picks up again in the story of Haman. So as we go through this, this first part of Esther, I want to note what the author emphasizes about our three main characters. And I want to note, this is perhaps more, not more important. Esther is one of the books that most emphasizes this particular trait of storytelling, that there's a lot left out. There's a lot of the story left out of Esther's life, of Mordecai's life, of Haman's life, of Ahasuerus's life. Just, we have a, 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 a small percentage of what is going on in their lives at any given time, which means that the choices of what to include have a special weight to them in the presentation of the story of the Feast of Purim. Esther 2, 5 through 7, there was a Jew in Susa. Of course, this is after, right, we're going to have this beauty contest. We're going to find the new queen for, for Hazarus. There's a Jew in Susa in the citadel whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem along with the captives carried away with Je uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom ne Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. A lot of language to say, here's a Jew. He's from Israel. He was, his family was carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. Uh, Hadassah would have been her Jewish name. Esther would have been her Persian name. Uh, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father or mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. Esther is first presented as vulnerable, yet beautiful. She is, uh, of course, orphaned, doesn't have anyone, yet she is, is, of course, this very lovely lady. The emphasis on her beauty and sort of the way that this is presented, the young woman had a beautiful figure, was lovely to look at, may seem shallow at first, but this is going to be one of the vital parts of the story because it is through her beauty that she's going to come into a position of power. 
just is what it is. And, and as the story progresses, we're going to see why that's important, of course, with uh, the king Ahasuerus. Mordecai introduced as loving and responsible. This woman is orphaned. This lady is orphaned. She is, has nowhere to go. Mordecai takes her in, cares for her as his own daughter, taking on responsibility that may or may not have been his. Been his. We don't really know enough about his family situation. Is he the only brother? Is he the only one, only nephew? Like, we, we just don't know enough about his family situation to know if this was necessarily his task. But nonetheless, he doesn't do so half-heartedly. The story never presents him as anything less than a loving father. And in fact, there's going to be several points in the story where the story is going out of its way. The author's making sure you know Mordecai is a good father. He cares about Esther. Uh, verse 8. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, that is, we're going to gather the young women, we're going to find this new queen for Ahasuerus, uh, and many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Hegai. Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Hegai, who had charge of the women. The young woman pleased him, uh, the young woman that is, pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with cosmetics and her portion of food with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Here we see the main contrast between Esther and the other exilic writings. That is, Esther makes no attempt to make herself separate as a Jew. She just is acting like one of the girls, one of the ladies in the palace. She, she doesn't make any distinction about the cosmetics. She doesn't make any distinction about the food. Of course, we, we contrast that, I think, most prominently with the story of Daniel, right? Daniel and his three friends, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to eat certain things in the palace of the king, and they very much remained separate. We already again see, though, how her beauty, which may be a shallow thing to focus on, but that's going to be the thing that gets her in the door is her beauty as it's playing into this story. Of course, more explicitly, Esther 2 verse 10, Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now, there's a couple of ways to interpret Mordecai's command. Hey, Esther, you're going to be in this, this harem. You're going to try to appease the king, get into his court. Don't tell anyone who you are. Don't tell anyone you're a Jew. Don't tell anyone you're from Israel. Don't tell anyone our family is in captivity. There's a couple of ways to interpret this, depending on how gracious you want to be to Mordecai. Is Mordecai fearful? All right, if we tell anybody about this, we're going to die. They don't like Jews. They won't, they won't treat us well. So is it a fearful thing? Is it necessary precaution, right? Maybe there is an element to fear, but hey, it's a wise thing to do. We, we want to take precautions. Of course, this is contrasted again with the other exilic writings where the people of Israel, especially the heroes of the stories in the other exilic writings, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah, they don't make any attempt to hide. They're very proud about who they are. They're very open about being servants of Yahweh, about being Israelites. So Mordecai, is this a necessary precaution? Is he afraid? Is it self-serving? Maybe if I think I'm going to hide our, her heritage, we can have some political or economic advantage because people don't know who we are, right? There's this, and yet the contrast, of course, that we're going to see in just a minute, Mordecai wants Esther to hide, but Mordecai himself is not going to hide, which is kind of weird because it means that the rest of the people are kind of dumb and that they sort of don't put two and two together. Like that Esther goes with Mordecai and Mordecai's a Jew and Esther's with Mordecai and, and somehow they never put that together in the story. Uh, regardless, what do we see again? Mordecai is again shown to be a loving and supportive Father. He goes by every day 
to figure out, to see what's happening with Esther. Esther's over in the court, the palace area. Esther, uh, Mordecai's walking by, wanting to get in from it. Hey, how's Esther doing? How's Esther doing? How's Esther doing? And I would suspect if we're thinking about how do we interpret Mordecai in this way, the story is going to go out of its way to emphasize the wisdom of Mordecai, his shrewd nature, his in in intellect. So if we're thinking about how this is intended to be interpreted, I think it's intended to be Mordecai is exercising a necessary precaution, ultimately in service of God's providence. Now, did God tell him to do it? I don't think so. But I do think God is using Mordecai's natural tendencies to bring Esther into a certain position. Because that's ultimately, again, what the story is about, is how God is moving the people in the story to bring about a certain outcome. Esther 2, verse 12. When the turn came for each young woman to go into Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for women, since this was the regular period for their beautifying. Again, we got a year-long process here. Six months with oil of myrrh, six months with spices and ointments. When the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of that dude, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubine. She would not go to the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. Now, this is just explaining the process here. This is not necessarily talking about Esther yet. Once again, the king is shown to be excessive and self-serving in the utmost. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Ahasuerus is super vain. He's super proud, super arrogant. There's no need to go through 12 months of beautifying the, the women. That's just ridiculous. What are you doing, Ahasuerus? But here he is, right? 12 months of this process just to be able to go to the king. He's almost comically excessive in the feasts, of course, that he offered at the beginning of the book. And, of course, his response to Vashti. And now he's comically excessive in the way that he treats these women. 2.15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the daughter of, uh, the uncle of Mordecai, rather, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Second thing we note about Esther. First thing, her incredible beauty. Second thing is her willingness to listen to advice. That is the second main point of emphasis on the character of Esther. First, she listens to Mordecai about hiding her heritage. Esther, don't tell anybody. And it actually says Mordecai commands her. And she goes along with it, right? She hides who she is. Second, she accepts the cosmetics and the food, okay? This is how it goes. Maybe you like it, maybe you don't. You need these cosmetics. You need this kind of food. We're going to do this 12-month process. Esther doesn't seem to put up any fight. She just sort of goes along with it. Third, only taking what Haggai advises, okay? Haggai, I'm going to go into the king. What should I take with me? Well, here's what you should take. And she doesn't make any attempt to add anything or subtract anything. She just goes with the advice of Haggai. Now, again, we could interpret this less than graciously. That Esther lacks agency, we might say. She just is sort of going along with whatever anybody has to say. I don't, again, I don't think that's how the story is intending this to be interpreted. I'll explain why in just a bit. But... That is an argument that could be made as we're thinking about Esther's original, uh, initial presentation in the story. She's beautiful, and she doesn't think for herself. Well, that's a less than gracious way of thinking about it. Except that is kind of how the book's presenting her. 2 verse 15. Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. When Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, uh, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight. So... We have four years that pass. I didn't have this in the timeline. I couldn't fit everything in. 
Four years that pass between the initial let's search for a king, uh, a replacement queen, and now Esther in the seventh year has been set up. Uh, she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set, his royal, uh, set the royal crown on her head, made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a feast for all his officials and servants. Another feast. So many feasts in this book. Uh, it was Esther's feast. He also granted her a mission of taxes in the provinces and gave gifts with, general, uh, with royal generosity. The providence of God is a heavy topic as we think about this. Okay, the story is not really even picked up yet, the story of Haman. How far back are we going with God's desire for Esther to be in this position? Because this is, this is setting her up for where she's going to be for the rest of the story. This is really setting Esther in position for the whole business with Pure and Purim and the lots and Haman and all that stuff. How far back do we go for where God is putting her in her life? Was God like directly involved in mingling her genetic profile so she's super beautiful? I don't know. Seems like her beauty was kind of the main thing that got her into the king's um, attention, got her into this position of authority and power. So did God make sure when she was born, yeah, this Esther, she needs to be super beautiful. What about the death of her parents? Okay, Mordecai is the one that, of course, is advising her in all of this, and Mordecai is going to be integral to the whole story as we go. Was it necessary that her parents die, or is that just sort of a thing that happened and then God said, well, I can use this? It's kind of hard to say. We think about the providence of God, it is a complex, heavy topic. The pride of Vashti. Again, similar thing. Well, Vashti needs to be out of the way. Well, how much of that was Vashti versus God, making sure that this particular set of circumstances happened? The elevation of Ahasuerus, who is, by all accounts, vain and sort of stupid and very excessive, and yet his particular characteristics lead him to admire and choose Esther. And so we can see the many pieces on the chessboard. Of course, we're just presented with a small amount of it. The amount of information that God is processing at any given time, decades in advance, centuries in advance. It boggles the mind, really to think about the amount of information that God is processing at every, any given time to achieve a particular outcome. In this case, of course, the story of Purim and the salvation of the Jews. Esther, of course, then is introduced as an archetype of a particular version of womanhood. Physical beauty of the utmost importance because it allows her to woo the king. The other predominant trait is her willingness to listen to men in her life. And in some ways, it's easy to pick apart the story of Esther as outdated, right? This woman, she's just beautiful and she just listens to people and very passive. And yet, this is where, really where the crux of the story comes to bear. Esther is going to bear the most immediate risk of everyone in the story. Ahasuerus is presented almost as this force of nature. He's the one that ultimately is Vashti's downfall, because Ahasuerus doesn't like what she does. He's Haman's downfall. Ultimately, Esther, out of all of the characters in the story, is going to bear the most immediate risk because she's going to risk the wrath of Ahasuerus. So at the beginning, she's presented as this beautiful young woman who just listens to advice. But it would be unwise to underestimate someone just because they seem to fit a certain mold. Esther is going to be the one that has to take on this risk. And of course, she's going to do so. Esther 2 verse 19, as we transition to thinking more about Mordecai. 
When the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate. Esther had not yet made, uh, had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her. Esther obeyed Mordecai, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai. He told it to Queen Esther. Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when the affair was investigated and found it to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of Chronicles in the presence of the king. Weird story. Unless you know the whole point of the story of Esther, you're familiar with the whole narrative. This story doesn't seem to make sense in the beginning. Introducing, of course, Mordecai as sort of this loyal servant of the king, willing to do what's right, the uprightness of Mordecai. Of course, we understand that this is going to play into the story later on. This is going to come back. There's a lot of foreshadowing going on in the story. So we think about Mordecai. Introduced, he's a loving, adoptive father. Took her in when she had no, no one. Made sure to check on her often. And yet there is a tension between his uprightness and his deception. He's upright. Hey, there's a plot against the king. I better tell the king. Well, he doesn't really tell the king. Uh, there's, this, there's this chain of information. Ultimately, he tells the king, right? But through this chain of information... On the other hand, he's lying about who he is. Well, not him. He's telling Esther to lie about who, he is, who she is. So there is an element of uprightness. There's also an element of deception, wisdom, and cunning. Hiding their heritage either out of fear or out of wisdom, making sure that the plot on the king's life is reported. Though we could even argue this, that he only reports the, the thing about the plot because it's for Esther's benefit. Because if Ahasuerus is killed... Who knows what the next king's going to do with Esther? We know that Ahasuerus likes Esther. So maybe he's just reporting the plot to make sure that Esther is safe, which goes back to him being a loving, supportive father. He wants what's best for Esther. And so Mordecai, if we're thinking about archetypes, Esther, the classic damsel in a story, Mordecai is the sage, the wise man who carefully influences events from behind the scenes. And he does this a number of times in the story. Sometimes it can be hard to judge intent just by what we see people do. At this point in the narrative, Mordecai has lied to everybody, told Esther to lie to everybody. On the other hand, he's been very careful to check on Esther, make sure that Esther has what's best, and he's foiled a plot on the king's life. He's a complex dude, this Mordecai. But his predominant trait is his wisdom. That is what is being presented in the story of Mordecai. Finally, introduced to the villain of our story. Esther 3, 1 through 4. After these things, sometime after, after Esther is elevated, there's a, a, a five-year gap. We don't really know exactly when all this is taking place. After these things, King, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Ag Agagite, the son of that dude, and advanced him and set, uh, set the throne above all the officials who were there with him. All the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed and paid homage to Haman. Haman's basically he's second in command. The king had so commanded concerning him, but Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants, who were at the king's gate, said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? They spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. And this is the weirdest part of the introduction. For he had told them he was a Jew. Wait, weren't we hiding? Weren't we hiding that with Esther? Esther, don't tell anybody who you are, but don't worry, I'll tell everybody who I am. And I don't know, it's so weird. The, so, the story is so strange. Because it's such, there's this revelation that we're building toward ultimately with Esther's feasts for Mordecai, not for Mordecai, for Haman and Ahasuerus. 
there's going to be this big revelation that Esther is a Jew and Haman's acting against Esther. And ah, so this... Anybody in the story could have put it together. All of the information is available to everyone in the story, and nobody puts it together. Because, again, if we're thinking about themes in Esther, one of the main themes in Esther is that just because you're in power doesn't make you smart. The people in power are presented as dumb. They're idiots. They don't put anything together. They're proud. They're vain. They're arrogant. They're not competent. Being in charge does not make you a good person or a competent person. And so we see Mordecai. Why take this risk? Why risk this? On the one hand, he, he doesn't tell Esther to remain pure, accepting the, the different things that people give him in the in king's court. And yet Mordecai, he is standing out. He's taking a giant risk here, not bowing down to Haman, I presume. We're, we're not actually told this, but we have to presume because of his Jewish heritage. He knows he's not supposed to worship anybody else. I don't know. It's hard to say. But we do also see in this the kind of man that Haman is. He's vain and proud. What happens? Verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage, Haman was filled with fury. He disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So they, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. At this point in the story, we could realize this, what exactly the point. Does Haman not know about Esther? Does Haman not care about Esther? Because Esther's included in this group. We know Ahasuerus loves Esther. And so Haman's somehow not putting it together. In the way that Esther and Mordecai both represent common sort of narrative archetypes, Haman is the archetypal antagonist in power. He's vain. He's proud. He's unwilling to accept that one person, one person wouldn't bow to him. Everybody else is. But ultimately, he's also concerned with his reputation. We're going to see this later on, too. He, he doesn't want to lay hands on Mordecai alone. Why is that? Well, it's one of two reasons. Either he knows that if he does so, it looks bad on him because he's responding to this peasant. He really got under Haman's skin, and, and Haman, aren't you better than that? Or maybe he doesn't have a legal reason to do it. Like, there's no legal reason. I know the king said to bow down, but he won't. Am I really allowed to just kill this guy? But I think ultimately it's reputational. If he just responds to Mordecai, he raises Mordecai up to a higher level, right? I care too much about what Mordecai thinks. Mordecai is some dude way down here. Why does he matter? And so he can't just respond to Mordecai. He's got to deal with the whole race of the Jews. Which brings us to the third thing. He ultimately is very callous. How many people is he willing to hurt to get back at one guy because he hurt his pride? Haman might be the most vain character in the entire Bible. Just vanity upon vanities. That one guy slighted his reputation, and so in response, let's just wipe out a whole group of people. And yet again, ultimately not really thinking it through because Esther's a Jew, but again, nobody kind of nobody puts that together in the story. And so as with the king, we said this already, Haman reinforces the lesson that just because someone is in power does not make them a good person or even a competent person. Being in charge of people doesn't make you a good person. And in fact, the story of Esther as an exilic writing is emphasizing the fact that Israel's enemies did not defeat Israel because they were so great. Israel's enemies did not conquer Israel because they were so smart or they had more military prowess. They defeated Israel because God allowed it. They are in this position, the Israelites are, 
because ultimately God is in control. It's not because Haman and Ahasuerus are so great. Now, it's been claimed as we conclude our story. This is, again, the last introductory lesson. The stage has been set for the casting of pure, beginning in 3 verse 7, which we'll talk about next week. It has been claimed by some that because the main characters follow so closely these sort of narrative tropes, the story couldn't have really happened. And I do want to answer that briefly. Because it is true that by emphasizing certain things and not others, the author is shaping the way the characters are represented. But in a story that covers nine years and nine chapters, you can do that simply by not saying a lot of stuff. There's so many things about Esther, about Mordecai, about Haman, about Hazarus. 99% of their lives, their character that is not told to us. The story is shaped by what is chosen to be included because again, the story is about this celebration of the Feast of Purim and how God orchestrated these particular events. So just because the author is shaping these things in a particular way, in these narrative, these narrative ways to emphasize certain attributes of Esther, certain attributes of Mordecai, certain attributes of Haman, doesn't mean the events didn't happen. This is just what the author is choosing to include. As we might say, happens in the Gospels. We're told at the end of John, right, the things that Jesus did, I suppose the world could not contain the book if everything were written in, uh, that Jesus did, but these are written so that you may believe and believing may have life in his name. Every story of the Bible is constructed to convey a certain point or to teach a certain lesson. In the story of Esther, the point is, moreover, Esther, Mordecai, Haman, and Hazarus, they aren't really the main characters. Yahweh is the main character. Even though Yahweh's name is not mentioned, even though the, the word God isn't even mentioned, we can see already how he is shaping events around the traits of these individuals. He's shaping events around who Ahasuerus is, around who Vashti is, around who Haman is, around who Mordecai is, around who Esther is. And the means by which God provides for his people is complex it's hard to discern, especially today. We think about providence today. In the story of Esther, we have a lot of information that makes it somewhat easier for us to see the providence, except in some ways the Jews only need help because of Mordecai, because Mordecai refuses to bow, and then Haman hates the Jews, and Haman wants to destroy the Jews. What if Mordecai just never bowed? Or, or never rebelled against Haman? What if Mordecai just wasn't in the story at all? What if there was a different person? Now you can make the argument Haman would have found an excuse some other way and, and this is all happening because Haman was going to be the, the, a problem for the Jews either way. But at least as the story presents it, Mordecai is the instigating vent of Haman's hatred. So how much of this is God's plan and how much is the personality and choices of the individuals? That's ultimately the question of providence. That is not easy to answer for a story like Esther where we have a lot of information, which makes it doubly so hard to answer for our lives. How much of the struggles of what I'm going through is because of my choices and the choices of the people around me? How much of my successes is because of my own choices and the choices of people around me? And how much is God's plan? The things that God wants to accomplish. I'm very confident that God still has plans today. God is still working in the world. He still has things that he wants to accomplish. But it can be very hard for us to figure out, to parse how much of it is involved in what I'm doing, what you're doing. And again, we think about the level of information that God is holding at any time. Seven billion people 
who all have hopes and dreams and lives and thoughts and flaws and traits and, and things that are going on, histories and futures, that God is balancing ultimately all things work together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to his purpose. If it's hard to deduce all of these things in the story of Esther, where we have a lot of information given, how hard might it be for us to deduce these things in our lives? It's difficult. But similarly to the story of Esther, the point is to give God the benefit of the doubt. Even when his presence can't be certain. People, we talked about this at length, did not want to include Esther in the canon because it doesn't mention God. There's a, there's a, a certain lack of emphasis about God in the story. And yet, clearly, I think as you read it, you can see God's presence. And I think it's the same in our lives. Sometimes it can be hard to feel God's presence. What is he doing? How is he acting? How is he operating? But I am 100% confident that God is working in your life. Not to your desires, not to things that you necessarily want, but for your spiritual good. And we can be like Esther, or we can be like Haman, or we can be like Mordecai, or we can be like Ahasuerus. Maybe, uh, you've heard of demotivators maybe, the opposite of motivational posters. Maybe the point of your life is to serve as a warning to others, don't be this way. That's the point of Haman's life. I'd like to think that's not the point of our lives, though. That we can choose to be the best versions of ourselves. Think about the things of Esther's life, the emphasis that it placed on Esther. Think about Mordecai, the emphasis of his character traits. Be the best version of yourself you can be. Align yourself with God's will. And God will find a place for you in his kingdom. And he will give you things to do to further his plan. The choice that's left to us is very simple. We can either be like Haman and destined for wrath, or we can be like Esther and destined for mercy. That's the choice. Your choice is not, is God going to use you? God will use you, one way or the other. And so the invitation is simple as we conclude. I know this has been a long sermon. Thank you for bearing with me. The invitation is simple. Choose to be on his side, right? Choose to be on the side of the one who is hopefully working to bless, to do spiritual good for you, and not on the side of those like Haman and Ahasuerus who are destined for doom. Choose to be on his side.